Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 13. Begin reading in just a few moments. I want to thank my father for the opportunity and for you as well to preach. He said this is not practicing. Unfortunately, preaching is one of the few occupations where you don't get to practice. It's always the real thing. So it's a little nerve-wracking and scary at the same time. But I've been uh, away at school for three years now. I've just finished my junior year. I'm a pastoral major, and I'm going to be finishing up my senior year, Lord willing, next year, which sounds a little terrifying. It's been like a time warp. I'm really not sure where I am or where I've come from or even where I'm going. So if you'd pray with me about that, that I could uh, get some direction as far as what I'm going to do after I graduate and such as that. So if we look at our text now, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers... They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject, Unto him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you tonight, and I thank you for this opportunity to preach, and I pray that you would help me to communicate this message and this biblical concept that would help us to serve you, and that it would change the way we think about what we're doing. In your pray, amen. Why? Think about it. Why? What does that even mean? It's a very popular question around the age of three years old, two, a hundred, or however long your life expectancy is. The reason for doing things is a very important motivation for doing those things. When I was a small child, why should I take out the trash? My dad would tell me, because I said so. And that was the motivation. Because he told me to do something. And I knew if I didn't do something, there was going to be some serious ramifications, as he would put it, upon my person and my being. If I did not do the things that I was doing. And that was motivation for me to do something. Another question is how? How? How can I do something? Why is asking a reason? And that's the motivation Why should I do something? Because I said so. How should I take out the garbage? That's a method. How am I going to take out the garbage? Well, I'm going to take it, I'm going to put it in a bag, and I'm going to tie it up real tight, and I'm going to take it to the appropriate 
not the inappropriate container. I'm going to put it in that container. I'm going to make sure it stays closed so that it will not smell and decay and cause odiferous smells to the nose. That's the appropriate method for taking out the, the garbage. And the reason for doing so is because my father told me to. To the millennial mindset, there seems to be neither a reason nor a method, but rather simply a desire to do something. And if I don't want to do it, I won't. Well, why are you going to be rich and famous and have nothing to do but enjoy your wealth? Well, because there's a star within me, and this star will take me the distance. Well, how are you going to accomplish this? Your motivation is because there's a star within you, which seems completely wrong. But even if your motivation is wrong and the reason for doing this, how are you going to accomplish this? Because I want to and because I deserve to. And there is no reason and there's no motivation and there's no method. It's just going to happen and we're going to have hope because we have change and we're going to have change because we have hope. And it comes all convoluted and back and forth and different and it makes no sense at all. Thankfully, in our Bible, there is always a reason and a method and a proper motivation because sometimes we think of our Bible and the passages we read, we think about it as these golden tablets that came down. And we look at them and we put them on the shelf. And they have these truths that we look at. And they're truths that we live by, but, but they're just golden tablets. But actually, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was both real people that both wrote these books and real people to whom these books were written. In the epistles, in First Peter, Peter was an apostle in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where he was when he wrote this. That something is not exact science and we're not going to conjecture about it. But he wrote it to real people for a real reason. And it had a real motivation and a real method for doing things in this book. And we could sit around and we could conjecture about who this book was written to. And then we could write a book about it and we could make things up and we could call ourselves commentators. Or we could just go back to the beginning and chapter 1 and verse 1 where it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's who wrote it. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's who this book was written to. And as we go through the book in chapter 1, it explains why he was writing. Because these believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that was Asia Minor, nowadays modern Turkey. And I believe, personally, that these believers in these places were Gentile believers simply because of the way that Peter addresses them and the specific instructions that he gives them would fit with a Gentile audience. And as they're in these particular places, they are suffering. They are suffering a trial of their faith. And they, as the Bible was not yet written, when we suffer and we do things, we go to the Bible for the answers. And yet they didn't have the Bible, and that's why Peter wrote to them, inspired of God to write to them and to give them instructions for how to live. They were suffering this persecution, and I believe at this time it would have not been the full onslaught of the Roman persecution. The Christians were eventually, as we know by the different um, emperors of Rome, would be burned at the stake, and it would be a complete social purging trying to rid the entire Roman Empire of every possible Christian. And I believe at this point that that had not yet happened but that it was coming, that they were suffering from social ostracization, 
from persecution from neighbors. They were the dirty Christians. And yet, with this current persecution, with the social status completely turned on its head, those who had been wealthy idolaters were now Christians and poor and without anything. And now with this current suffering and the social purging and the complete persecution in view, Peter writes, and Peter is encouraging them to continue to live holy before God and the world around them. In chapter 2, he begins a long list of how to follow Christ's example of suffering in specific situations. To submit to all authorities. And to, in chapter 3, it starts out with, it, it gives the list of how wives should live with husbands who are unsaved and various ways to follow and submit after that pattern of the suffering Savior. And then verse 8 of chapter 3, we have his conclusion of what some would call the household duty code. Basically, a list of instructions of how to be like Christ and to follow his example. And in verse 8, it says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion, one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Because basically what Peter is looking at here is they have been called in first chapter in chapter one, it says, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter's reminding them that as Christians they are to be holy. Well, what is this concept of being holy? This concept of being holy is to be separate. Just like God is separate and God is holy, we are to be separate from the world, which they were already doing. And as they're separate from the world, because of their holiness, they are being persecuted. And Peter is challenging them, as they're separate from the whole, just because they're separate from the whole, does not mean that they are unified in Christ. And he's saying, be unified in Christ, be of one mind, as you're separate and holy from the world. And rather, in verse 9, it's giving these instructions of how to be the rendering, not evil for evil. This is how you're supposed to act as one with Christ. Well, how, how, what, is, what is the place for being one with Christ? Well, it's, it's right here. The church. The church is where we are one with Christ, both in the first century and now, separate from the world, a family of God. And how they're supposed to act is for he that will love Life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. And then he gives another motivation for this in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Peter is telling them specifically and exactly that God is approving of their holy lifestyle regardless of how the world views them and persecutes them. The eyes of the Lord are on those that are righteous and His ears are open unto their prayers. Those that are righteous and those that are living holy and separate from the world. But those that are evil, his, in verse 13, it, it, the Lord is against them that do evil. And then we begin the passage that we've looked at. That's all leading up to it. That's the context. He asks the question, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Because God is approving of their lifestyle. Who is going to hurt them? When God is for you, who can be against you? If they are living this holy lifestyle that they have called to be lived, and they continue to live it, and as we realize, they're suffering persecution currently. 
So they have already been saved, and they are already living this holy lifestyle, and Peter is encouraging them to continue in this holy lifestyle because God is approving of it. And no matter what happens, no one can harm the believer that lives the lifestyle that is approved of God, and that lifestyle is holiness. And verse 14, he continues, But there are times when godly living is a contradiction of culture. And this will bring persecution. Because when the holy lifestyle that they are living is separate from the world, it's an indictment against those that are not living holy. And they know that they're disapproved of God. And because of this, they persecute those that are approved of God. And if it brings this contradiction and this persecution, the proper response that Peter gives is in the second half of verse 14. Happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And then he starts. That's how they're supposed to act. They're supposed to be happy, which seems to us to be counterintuitive. How are they supposed to be happy in persecution? Usually... When I have a headache, that's some sort of suffering to my physical body. And when I have a headache, I'm not a very happy person. That's pain that's going on in my cranium, and it causes me to be a very grumpy person, to be upset at everyone in the world, and it's everyone else's fault that I don't feel well. And because of that, I am very far from happy. And yet these as Christian believers are supposed to be happy in the presence, under, during, through, continuing this persecution and this suffering that they are experiencing. But why and how are they supposed to do this? And he says, this is the reason how you're supposed to do it, rather, or, I'm sorry, the method. How are they supposed to do that? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you. With meekness and fear. They are to live this godly lifestyle and to respond to this suffering by sanctifying the Lord in their hearts. Well, how do you sanctify the Lord in your hearts? By keeping him holy in your heart and setting him in a place where he is in control. And they're always to be ready to give an answer of every man that asketh you. Well, the reason why these people are asking them is because, and many of you may have experienced this, I've experienced this at work, and as you live your daily life, you are living a godly and a holy lifestyle. The things that the Bible tells us to do. And you guys know what that is. I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time right there. That's not the point of this sermon today. But rather, as they're living this holy lifestyle, those around them are going to ask them this question, why are you living like this? This How are they happy in spite of all these trials and all these suffering? Well, they're supposed to be ready to give that answer to every man that asketh you with meekness and fear. And then as they do that, they're supposed to, verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may ashamed that falsely accuse you your good conversation in Christ. They are to show, Peter tells them that they are to show how to suffer this persecution by sanctifying the Lord's in the heart, be ready to give an answer, and to have a good conscience. 
Well, how do they have this good conscience? Peter doesn't tell us yet, not till the end. Because he says, then thinks about it, for it's better if the will of God be so that he suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Stand, think about it. So you're suffering. It's a lot better to be suffering for rightful doing, for serving God, for being holy, than it is to be out stealing, lying, doing drugs. And if you're getting in trouble for that, well, you kind of deserve it, is what the kind of the point is. It's just think about it. He's saying, take a break. If you're suffering for doing right, it's better to do that than to suffer for doing evil, because if you're suffering for doing evil, that's just punishment. And then he comes upon one of the most powerful parts in all of the New Testament, and one that people try to confuse and to mess up and make things completely differing, because Peter is exhorting the scattered believers to be fearless in these trials because their ultimate victory is secure in Christ. Peter is exhorting them, as they're in these trials, to be fearless and not be afraid of their terrors because their ultimate victory is secure in Christ's victory. Because, in verse 18, For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Because on Calvary, Jesus died, and he was buried and for three days and for three nights. And because he rose again and he paid the debt for sin, that is the reason. That is the reason. That is the motivation that they can live this holy lifestyle. Why are they going to be holy? Because Jesus' victory secures our victory eternally. And there's nothing that can ever take that away. This suffering happened only once on Calvary. When the Catholics have their Mass and they do their little cross themselves and they say some really cool Latin words that actually don't mean anything and supposedly that becomes the body of Christ and His blood and they crucify Jesus again in their hearts. Jesus Christ died once and for all and it paid for every sin that was ever committed on this entire earth. And we are the undeserved beneficiaries of His suffering. And there was a purpose in this suffering to bring us to God. Because without his suffering, there is no way that any human could ever get to God. Their sin separates them. But because of the suffering and the victory of God, we can come and be children of the Father. And even though he was put to death in the flesh, he was quickened by the Spirit. When Jesus died on the cross, those Pharisees and the chief priests and the rulers and the elders and everyone that hated Jesus said, Ha! You have died under the power of Rome. And for Jesus to die under the power of Rome, that was for him to submit to them. That meant that Rome was greater. That means their means had been justified. And Jesus Christ was nothing but another man that was absolutely worthless and he had failed. He was dead and there was nothing that he could do. The disciples were nothing but a couple of fishermen with no leader. But on the third day, Jesus rose again in great glory and in great victory. And he was quickened by the Spirit. And in this same Spirit, he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, here's where the commentators and everyone likes to get real crazy with it. 
They like to take this and they like to say, well, Jesus went down to hell and he preached to all these people. And that means after you're dead, there's a certain chance that you could get saved. So you need to pay the Catholic Church and then they'll make sure that they get those people out of hell for you. Or they take other opportunities and they say, well, these were the people, the angels that went down and they did this and they did that. And they get it all confused. And it's really simple. And there's other parallel passages that time. The word preach here is, has more than one meaning. Now, there's preaching like I'm doing now. And there's preaching like prophesying. And there's preaching like proclaiming like a herald does when he goes through the streets and proclaims what has just happened. The war is over. The battle is won. And Jesus, when he was in that spirit after he rose from the ground on the third day, as he went to heaven, he proclaimed to the entire universe that he had won. Yes, he had died. Yes, he thought he had failed. But he had eternal and everlasting victory when he rose from the dead. And everyone knew it, even these spirits which were sometimes disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. And some of it you can get a little confused, and people also like to take some craziness about this, but if we just look at the Bible and simply understand, like we said before, there was a reason he wrote this, and he has a purpose, and that purpose is these spirits that were dead... These are the spirits of those men who were disobedient during the days of Noah, those who perished in the flood for their sinful doing. And it's not that they're having this opportunity to get saved. They already made their choices and they hated God. But rather, as they're in hell and as they're in this prison, they knew that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and that he had conquered. And Christ, God, was long-suffering with these people. He was long-suffering with them and that he awaited judgment. In the same fashion today as God is suspending judgment on those who do not believe until the final day of judgment. Peter is drawing some parallels and some pictures. And the ark was preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Well, as they were in the ark, the ark is a picture of salvation. And the ark didn't float on the water unless there was water. So as they're floating upon this water, they were saved. That is in few, eight souls. Because there was eight, Noah and his family, equals eight people. If we read the Genesis account and we took arithmetic class, we know that there were eight people. Well, Peter's also drawing a parallel. Those of us that are saved now, Jesus said straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Few people to even today find the salvation of God. And then here's where people like to really get crazy. The like figure where he unto even baptism death now also save us you have to be baptized to be saved and if you're not baptized you're not going to heaven and you must be baptized in the right church and da, 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 da. no actually let's read it together the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also doth also now save us not the putting away of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward god look in your bibles for a second look at the words there beginning at the word not and ending at the word god there is parenthesis, right? There's a parenthesis. Now, that's a grammatical structure. And what that does is that shows us that that whole clause is modifying baptism. This baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, i.e. salvation, putting away the filth that sends you to hell. This is modifying baptism. But baptism is rather but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And then after the parenthesis, it has this phrase here. By the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. How are they saved? By the answer of a good conscience, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this good conscience is obtained through baptism. And the baptism is not the saving part. The saving part is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the baptism is not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but rather having a good conscience toward God. And this same Jesus Christ, in the final verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Even in suffering, Christ was finally vindicated. And because the universality of his resurrection, he has the power to right all wrongs in the end. We can find that same salvation from the flood. Noah found salvation from the flood in the ark, through the waters. And we can find salvation from the coming judgment, through baptism but not baptism, the answer of a good conscience, which is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has been finally vindicated, and he is in control, and all things are put under his feet, and he will vindicate those on whom he is watching. He will justify our actions if we are doing right. What Peter was telling these scattered believers is they could answer their suffering with hope. How could they do this? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christians today can answer their suffering with hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now first, you cannot have the answer of a good conscience unless you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we go back, that having a good conscience and be ready to make an answer, that answer and the good conscience, they both come from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just like Pastor Montoro preached this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his resurrection, you can have this good conscience toward God. Without believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. And if you are not saved, living through suffering has no point. Because the final vindication only comes when you are saved. And when God's eyes are upon you. Because if you're not saved tonight, then this message has no meaning for you. Because suffering in this life has no meaning unless it has a meaning in the next life. And that meaning comes by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are not saved tonight, I pray that you would understand and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can have hope. And for those of us that are Christians... The lifestyle that the gospel demands, the lifestyle that the gospel demands, it will bring suffering. Life is pain. That's what they tell me. I've only experienced 20 years of it so far, and we'll see how the rest of it goes. But so far, that kind of makes sense. Life is pain. And how can you face this suffering that you're going through right now? And I mean, as Christians, we face a certain amount of persecution. If we are doing what we are called to be, and all Christians everywhere, not just people who are trying to be in the ministry and those that want to go to Heartland Baptist Bible College and for small children or for especially elderly saints, all Christians are called to be holy because God is holy. And because if you are going to be separate from the world, 
then you're going to incur the wrath of that world because you are separate and you are different from them. But we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. Some atheists and scientists say that, you know what, eventually the world's just going to overheat and um, it's going to just melt and it's going to be all done. And so when that's all done, well, it's an all done. And so live for now because that's all you got. Rather, in suffering, the Christian can count on the end of the story. And we can count ourselves happy because we know the end of that story. And how? Because we're victorious in Christ by his resurrection. When suffering comes to the unbeliever, they have no hope. And a midlife crisis ensues, and you've got to buy a new car and get a whole new family because apparently everything you've lived for so far was pointless. And it is pointless if you're not saved. And you don't have the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the believer can count himself happy to be a partaker in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Yes, as a Christian, I may be poor in this world, and I may not have a lot of money, and I may be at school and eating ramen noodles or whatever happens as I continue to live life, or as you may continue to live life. It may be difficult to make end meet. But you know what? It doesn't matter at all because when, if I am saved and if I am going to heaven, then I am headed to mansions of splendor beyond belief in God's presence. So this world doesn't matter, but the next one does. Why? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of his final conquering victory. You can raise a family, even of 12 children in a wicked city. Why and how? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has put all things under his feet. Even a foolish mayor. Or anything else you can possibly think of. Because all means everything that could possibly be. It's all under Jesus' feet. And this principle applies to every area of our life. How do we have a good conscience towards God? By salvation. And how are we to live as Christians? And how are we to be holy? It is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we read this and we realize that Peter was inspired by God to write this to people who needed this message. And you say, why was Peter so wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He gives in chapter 2, he ends chapter 2 with the suffering example of Jesus Christ. And he ends the main point of his whole book with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, you know what? Think back. Peter was more than just an apostle sitting there mechanically writing out the book of Peter. And he was inspired and he wrote these words and he had no idea what they meant. No, this was part of Peter's experience. Peter had been there. He was there when Jesus Christ had suffered and died. And in that hour of Christ's death, what had Peter done? He had deserted. He had left. When he was asked for that hope that is within you, the hope in Jesus Christ, what had he done? He said, no, I'm not one of them. They said, oh, you've got to be one of those Galileans, one of those fishermen. Yeah, you're with Jesus. Get him. He says, no, 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 I'm not, no, I'm not one of them. And then when they asked him the third time, he started cussing and getting all crazy and saying, I'm not one of them. And then at that moment, the cock threw, crew three times and he remembered and he realized that he had deserted Jesus Christ. And even after that, Jesus died and he was dead. 
for three long days and three long nights, Jesus Christ was in the tomb. And everything that Peter had lived for, for the past roughly three years of his life, and everything that he had hoped for, he had hoped that he would be in the kingdom of God. Jesus had told him that, and that he would be a ruler. And he was looking forward to this final victory over Rome and over all these things and these different concepts that he had of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the conquering Messiah. And yet he was dead. And they were hiding in this little room, afraid to come out because they thought they would be slaughtered too. And this sense of hopelessness came over them, as we know when they experienced this. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he was an eyewitness. He saw the risen Lord. And he knew Jesus Christ gave him an opportunity by the Sea of Galilee. He asked him, lovest thou me? Three times. He said, Lord, I, you know that I love thee. And from that moment on, Peter knew after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that there was no part of the Christian life whatsoever that remains unaffected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He knew because he had been there and he had deserted. And he knew that every part of the entire Christian life, life cannot be unaffected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ is not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. But Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, and there is no part of life that is without and is unaffected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked about motives, and we talked about methods. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is both the reason and the method to life. How are we going to be holy? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that it gives to conquer sin. Why should we be holy? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything you are facing right now, think about it. Anything I am facing at school or trying to work or trying to be a Christian. When you ask the question, why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How? By the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going through suffering right now or whatever you may be experiencing. How can you maintain that Christian testimony at work? When you go through a trial, when someone you love dies... When I remember Brother Charlie Horton, when he passed away, you know what? We could have joy. In fact, my mom could even write a song about it, and we could sing it with smiles on our face. Why? Because I know we'll see him again because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whatever specific trial and hardship you are facing, remember the example of Christ, his suffering, and the universality of his triumph. Jesus Christ has suffered once for our sins. And God the Father has put everything under his feet. Let us be holy. Let us have a good conscience. Let us be ready to give an answer. Let's pray.